Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Take your Bibles and turn there to Solomon's really epistle, his letter to those who would listen, those who would be wise enough to listen. Ecclesiastes 7. We found ourselves in the middle of this chapter, and I want to read from verses 15 to 29. That's going to be where we're going to turn our attention. And we're going to do a, a real skipping stone across the top of the lake because this is it's a unit that has to be held together, but it's also a unit that has, uh, has some, some quagmires we need to stop and address as we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15. Solomon says, I have seen everything during my lifetime of Habel, futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who progresses, prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and an explanation, to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape her from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher. Adding one thing to another will find to find an explanation, which I'm still seeking, but, but have not found. I have found one man alongside a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out Many devices. Well, just a simple reading of that text raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? And so does the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to confess that I find myself drawn to news talk shows. It's a problem. You can pray for me. Uh, they only make me mad and cause me to pursue sanctification at a deeper level. Almost every day there's a breaking story about a major issue, a major crime, a major crisis, or a catastrophe, or a scandal, and Every night, the people who call themselves pundits or experts fill the airways to analyze and advise, to discuss and disagree, to evaluate, to expound, to ponder, and to propagandize. But I think the question that needs to be asked is whether or not these experts are providing a solution to the problem, or are they just stirring up muddy water, merely indicating that the problem is beyond any of their wisdom and insight. I mean, if you think about it for a minute, if the answer to society's ills and the problems of our world really are underneath 
the hairspray and behind the makeup of these experts on the news channels, wouldn't things be getting better because of their profound sharing of ideas? We've been taking a really a guided tour over the last few months with King Solomon through life. It's ups, it's downs, it's highs, it's lows, the good times and the bad times. Solomon has been showing us that all of us, all the same tragedies, the maladies we, we face, the injustices, the problems, all of these call attention to our hearts to say, why? But Solomon answers with, with unique perspective, and he really was an expert, not just one of those men or women with makeup and hairspray saying that they know what they're talking about. He was an expert, first of all, by observation. Remember, he had seen almost every kind of problem as king and a judge. People were bringing him problems constantly. And because of his wisdom that he was given in 1 Kings 4 to decide hard cases, to know right from wrong, good from evil, and to lead the nation, because of that, he was constantly facing the injustices and the problems of his world. You remember when they, they brought the baby to him, and uh, the live baby, and there was a dead baby, and he said, cut the baby in half, and... The real mother said, this is mine. He observed so much of the rights and wrongs of the world. But he's also an expert by experience. He had, remember chapter 2, he had milked out of life every kind of pleasure he could find. He wanted to know if there was something new under the sun, if there's something he could experience that really would bring him lasting satisfaction. And he found nothing. So he was an expert by observation, an expert by experience. He was also an expert, as we remember, by divine enablement. God had given him a gift of wisdom. He had given him a gift and said, no one is going to be like you in your lifetime before or since except Christ. How would you like to have that, that wisdom to discern right and wrong, to see through people's motives, to understand your world and nature and spiritual things more than anyone around you? So... He's sharing Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, after the middle of his life, he crashes. Started out so well. 1 Kings 11 says that he turned his life away from God and turned it to the women who were taking his life toward idols. He had a tragic downfall, and we believe that Ecclesiastes is his regaining of his senses at the end of his life, telling you and telling me, you know, you can learn by your experiences, or you can learn by my experience. And we would do well to learn from his mistakes and his wisdom. So by this point, in the middle of Ecclesiastes, Solomon makes some, some of the most pointed observations and commands in the whole book. As he unpacks, unfolds this section, he's really uncovering the problem behind the problems of the world. But his insights wouldn't make any of the talk shows or pundits discussions in our generation... Why? Because he doesn't point to guns as the problem, and he doesn't point to, to starvation as a problem, or the Democrats or the Republicans as the problem. He, he doesn't point to video games that are violent. He leaves out parents and conditioning. He doesn't appeal to sensual Hollywood or TV cop shows. No. Solomon points his old bony finger right at you and me. And says, here's the problem. 
It's you. You are your greatest problem. Look at verse 20 again for a moment. Indeed, there's not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and who never sins. Can you just make that one of your life verses? It's pretty clear, isn't it? Look also down at verse 29. I found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many sins, devices, crutches. The problem with the world, our biggest problem is is us. And the problem with us is not a broken world, but a broken sinful soul. Sure, the world is broken. Sure, there's injustice. Sure, there's problems. There are problems all around us, in our families, in our lives. But we are our biggest problem. And if we understand ourselves as our biggest problem, it's sin is our biggest mover of all our problems, then we have found a solution that's only God and only the gospel. So we're going to unpack this very quickly and very, very brief, briefly, but as, as a unit, and look together at four instructions for repairing our souls. He talks about how broken we are here. We are the problem, and he tells us the solution. Four instructions for repairing our souls. The first is this. We have to deny the pseudo-rightness or righteousness, rather, of the world. Deny the pseudo-righteousness of the world. Verse 15. I've seen everything during my lifetime of Vanity, futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. He says this, don't think that that you're more righteous than you are. Observation that pursuing righteousness does not guarantee a long life. In fact, sometimes... The wicked seem to live longer and have a better time at living than we do. Turn for a moment over to Psalm 73. This is the passage with which most of you are very familiar. It's a psalm of of Asaph. What he does here is nothing short of remarkable. I won't take the time to read the whole whole passage, but, but a, a few highlights are, are important. Um, in the first 14 verses, he basically says, I see the wicked, and they're getting away with sin, and they're having a good time getting away with sin, and I'm jealous about that. They're getting away with it. Verse 9, they've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. And Asaph is totally puzzled by this. Why do, why do the bad guys seem to be winning? I want to pick it up in verse 15. He said, if I had said this, I will speak thus. Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, the unrighteous getting away with what they want to and enjoying life and me being righteous, being frustrated. I came, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. 
Here's what I want to get to. Look at his own heart in verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Can I just take a moment aside and talk to the junior hires, senior hires, and the collegians for a second? Those of you on the front part of your life, Every day you are bombarded with this world that's just accosting your mind and saying, do this, don't do that to be happy, and it has very little to do with God. You're being wooed by so many different directions, so many temptations. No one wants to live righteously. There's no gain in that. And Asaph says they're right in a temporal sense. Don't become embittered that you can't enjoy sin like your friends around you. Don't be pierced within where you say, I'm missing out. That's exactly what Asaph says. Verse 23, though, he says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand with your counsel. You will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. His perspective is eternal. Whom have I in heaven but you? We know this passage. Listen to it in context. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. There is the critical lesson that Solomon is teaching us here. Is he, is God, that greatest desire in our heart. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you, they will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, here's for me. The nearness of God, that's my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so that I may tell of all your works. Solomon says, sometimes people perish being righteous and they don't look like it's much gain. And there's a wicked man who actually prolongs his life because of his wickedness. That leads him to verse 16. Do not be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. Does that not sound counterintuitive? Are you sure that's in your Bible? This is one of the verses that led the Schofield Reference Bible to say, this is not all divine revelation. I mean, who says this? Does this seem counterintuitive to everything you've read elsewhere in the Bible? It's been the source of so much confusion, so much debate, but the key is that the verb is a, let me give you some Hebrew here, it's a hithpael in the Hebrew. It means it's a reflexive It can be translated, don't be righteous to yourself and wise to yourself, or righteous in your own eyes and wise in your own eyes. That's the Hebrew verb that would would translate that best. Proverbs 3, 7 says, do not be wise in your own eyes. This is the deceptive notion of self-righteousness. This is Solomon saying, don't you think that you're better than anyone else because you do certain things and don't do certain other things. Translated in New Testament terms, righteousness only comes from Christ. Verse 17 is the consequences of an unrighteous and unwise life that actually might shorten it. Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? I mean, when mom and dad told us, you know, you could get killed doing that, they were right. I... I had a discussion with, with one of my sons. I'm, I'm, I won't go into too much detail here. This summer, 
who had done something so, what's the right word? Stupid. Um, and I, do you ever hear your, your, your own parent? You hear them like coming out of your mouth and going into your ear. I heard Larry Holland. I heard him. I heard him. He was right there speaking to me when I was about the same age. Son, you are so stupid. This is not a self-esteem moment. You, are so, you could have been killed doing that. What are you thinking? That's what Solomon's saying here. Why are you going to die before your time? Are you wise? Are you, are you putting your life in the way of trouble? Verse 18, the real righteousness and real wisdom are a result of fearing the Lord. It is good that you grasp the one thing And also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. The greatest barrier to the gospel is a wrong view of our own righteousness. Grasping the right view of righteousness, the right view of wisdom, and letting go of the wrong view of righteousness and the wrong view of wisdom. Not being deluded, not being deceived. We need to remember this. Our own estimation of our own goodness and righteousness is worthless. Only God's standard counts in eternity. That's why verse 18 is there. Now, just for a moment, we're going to come back to this, but look at verse 20. There's not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and never sins. You, you do know that we're all, all wicked sinners condemned by God and worthy of wrath and judgment. Not one Paul says, not even one righteous man. Let's look at a second instruction for repairing your soul. Not only deny the pseudo-righteousness of the world, but secondly, deny the pseudo or false wisdom of the world. The false wisdom of the world. Now, this is not a new section of Scripture. We're going to go back to verse 17 and grab the same principle from this section of scripture. Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Do not be a fool is the same thing as saying make sure you're wise. Don't think you're wiser than you are. Don't think you have it figured out. And remember, listen students, this is, this is Solomon saying, remember your creator in the days of your youth. He's talking to young people and he's saying, you think you've got it figured out, but you don't. I remember, oh, how I, I regret Framing the sentence in my own mind. When my dad, I remember what it was, it was a concert I wanted to go to, and he said, no, I begged, I pleaded, I borrowed, he said, no, I begged more, I said, no, I went to mom, she said, maybe, I went back to dad, I got in double trouble. Does that sound familiar to anyone? And I remember sitting in my room thinking, my dad, I actually thought this thought, my dad, doesn't have a clue about life. I feel sorry for him. Because I know better. I actually thought it. Thought those words. And then God gave me three sons. Don't think you're wiser than you are, he says. Listen, we've talked about before, if all the knowledge and wisdom had all the answers that the world can offer, we would all be lining up at the universities just to check out every book to get 
the clues that we need to to live life. Science hasn't figured it out. Psychology, philosophy hasn't figured it out. Do you think that if a man could make genuine, true claims to wisdom and truth, that it would cover all the magazines and articles and websites of the world? We found a guy who's figured it out. So understand that the world's wisdom can talk about facts and observations, but it can never solve the real problem, which is us, which is our sin. So don't think you're wiser than you are. Reject the pseudo-wisdom of the world. That's the negative side. But there's a positive side that he adds too, beginning in verse 19, and this is number three. Pursue the perfect wisdom of God. Pursue the perfect wisdom of God. Verse 19 says, When a wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. The word rulers here is probably not the best translation. That, that almost sounds like you have too many cooks in the kitchen. The word ruler really can be translated as strong and mighty men. Three, three great warriors. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten mighty warriors can strengthen a city. True biblical wisdom can give protection, guidance, a standard that, that, uh, that controls your decisions. And conceit and foolishness can never compete with that. So then he comes to verse 20. Indeed, there's not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and who never sins. The word continually may be supplied in your, in your Bible. <clears throat> if it's in italics, that's a good thing because it's really not in the original. This is how the, the original goes, very simply. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. There's no continually in there. There's no righteous man. Oh, there are nicer people than, than meaner people. But that's a standard that we measure horizontally, not vertically with God and his standard. His standard is absolute perfection. This is a profound and simple reality. There's none righteous, Paul says in Romans 3, not even how many? One. It includes both sins of omission and commission. There is none righteous, not even one. Don't forget it. Remember that we are in that category. And that sounds like a, you know, that your problem is you. That's a great thing to realize because if our problem is us, the solution is outside of us and it's Christ and it's the gospel and it's a good conclusion to make. You know, Bob told you this morning, don't, don't come back to Ecclesiastes tonight if you're looking for a, a sermon on self-esteem. You really shouldn't come to the Bible for a sermon on self-esteem because the Bible says your esteem is what God has done for you and in spite of you. Not because you look down and say, wow, what a nice man or woman. Leads us to verse 21. And do not take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. This is so raw. It's so raw. He's saying don't take everybody at face value. People are hypocrites. Oh, yes, you are a people person. Oh, yeah, then you and I are, what's the syllogism? Hypocrites. Everyone is. I mean, come on. Do you, do you really express what you really think to people? Or do you have just a, just a shred of, as my one son says, hyperbole. A little hyperbole to say, well, no, 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 hey, hey, 
rather than saying the truth. And he's, he gets pretty raw here. Don't take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Don't be surprised by the hypocrites in your life because you are one too, Solomon says. Ouch. It's a footnote and it's an example to explain that there's not even one righteous. So verses 21 and 22 really are illustrations of verse 20 that there's not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good. Now verses 23 to 29 is going to move from the, from the righteousness back over to the wisdom. He bounces back and forth between righteousness and wisdom. Verse 23, I tested all this with wisdom. Now stop right there. He had the ability to test all this. He was the wisest man who had lived up to that point in history, the wisest man ever except for Jesus himself. He'd been given this wisdom. He had observation. He had experience. He was incredibly wise. So he takes all that wisdom and he tested this theory, this theorem, and said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. You can't miss this. The wisest man who ever lived said, I am going to live wisely, and it was beyond him. Why? Because Solomon is in the category of verse 20. He, too, is not a righteous man. Verse 24. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can cover or discover it? Can you really have a proper perspective on the present and the future by looking at the past, do you, do, you, do you trust your memory of things? I uh, took my family back a few years ago to Chattanooga where I grew up. <clears throat> and, and one of my fondest memories, the place I wanted to go more than anything, was a little ball field that I spent all my summers at, played baseball. And it was, um, it was just it was some of my fondest memories with my best friends and my family. And I wanted to go back and look at it. And, I, and we, we drove back behind this elementary school, and it was so sad. It, just, it was a punch in the stomach. It was all overgrown. There was this rusted backstop. But, but we were there. And I just remember looking at it and thinking, this is so small. Because when you're shorter than I am now, I was that at one time, and, and you this is the ball field, and there's first, and there's third, and this mass outfield, and it was so huge. And you go back, and you go, wow. You ever had that experience where your memory is not quite connected to reality? It's exactly what Solomon is talking here. What's been remote is exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? Don't trust the wisdom that you've seen collected as a litmus test for your own Life. There are limits to even what true wisdom can answer. So verse 25, I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. He further ponders the character of man and his conclusion. As you move through Ecclesiastes, his conclusion gets darker and darker and darker. The more he looks at his own soul, the more, and remember he had failed 
severely, the more he looks at the observation of the world, the more he judges cases and, and decides matters between people. It got worse. Verse 26, and I discovered, this was his conclusion after he did this investigation. More bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains, the one who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. I had a guy sit in my office one time with this verse and say that was his reason for divorce. That is not what this verse is talking about. It's very interesting. In the middle of a discussion about wisdom, here we meet a strange and a persuasive woman. Who is this? What is he talking about? Who is she? Well, she is the harlot, the seductress that Solomon gives great warning about in Proverbs 2, Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, and Proverbs 7. But before you're too hard on the the gender, the, the females are always the seductress, seductress. I think it goes both ways. Men can be the same thing and do the same sin. More bitter than death is to be trapped by someone who pulls you in with sexual sin. The end, the sinner will be captured by her. Just read Proverbs 5. The whole chapter is given to understanding the way of a seduction that brings you away from your moral standards before God into pursuing and enjoying sin. He's still in this discovery. Verse 27, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find explanation. I am starting to do the calculus of my observation. I'm putting this with that. He probably had charts out. He's looking at what happened in different places with different people, which I am seeking but have not found. I found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. What in the world is that talking about? Well, he's saying wisdom is rare, but even more rare in wisdom, in women rather. And you say, what? What kind of sexist is this man? The context here is the wisdom or the foolishness of someone who's wooing you into sexual sin. He's not anti-women. Just flip the page for a second. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. This is a one of my favorite verses that I, I, I think describes my own life and the joy that I have with my precious bride, Kim. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life. He's not anti-women. Solomon is saying, Rick, look at your wife. That's God's reward to you. That's God's blessing to you. Now, ladies, don't go home tonight and say, just want you to know I'm the reward for your being alive. <laughs> Actually, on second thought, maybe you should go, no, go home and say that. He's, the context here is being wise in the midst of temptation. He says, I haven't found a woman among these. I haven't even found a man, too. We, we, we look at the last part, but look at the first part. 
I haven't found one man in a thousand. He's saying, I haven't found a man or a woman who's wise or morally upright if they put themselves in the flow and the temptation of sexual immorality. Are we becoming wise? Are we committed to this wisdom literature? Do we know that all wisdom is personified in Christ? Colossians 2, 1 to 5. Well, that leads to the last section here in verse 29. Pursue the perfect righteousness of God. The last instruction for repairing your soul. Pursue the perfect righteousness of God. Verse 29. I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Verse 29 is the only place to find the righteousness that you need It's in God. Not the devices. These devices, interesting Hebrew word, it means things that you can imagine or think up in your heart. Things that you can put in your mind to tempt you to find satisfaction and meaning and righteousness. It's an allusion to the garden. God made men upright. He made Adam and Eve in a perfectly righteous state and they blew it. They they turned away from God. There's so much of Genesis in in the book of Ecclesiastes. So much. He keeps going back to the creative order and says, God made man upright, but they have sought out many devices. Can you just pause for a second? This word devices means things to bring you pleasure that are not God. It's not if, it's what. What are those things in your life? What are your, your, your hobbies, your pleasures, your... Experiences, your material purchases, it, it can be anything. What device sneaks in your heart as an idol? The worst answer you can give is, I don't know. You, you ought to know. You better know. I can assure you that the enemy of your soul knows very, very well. And if you're not sure, Ask your brother or your sister. Ask your mom or your dad. Ask your husband or your wife. Ask a friend, what, what do you think my devices are? What, what are those things that I tend to seek out because I think they're wise and right or they bring me pleasure other than God? The problem with the world is people and the problem with your world is you and the problem in my world is me. And it demands reparation, repairing of your soul. Now here's what we'll find out when we get to Romans chapter 12 in just a few weeks, that you're offering yourself as as a constant sacrifice before God. And the word there is a living sacrifice. You know what the intimation there is? Is that you keep slithering off the altar to be sacrificed doesn't go away. Repentance is not one time and you're done. Very few things in obedience are. Let me just, uh, in, just in preparation for the Lord's table, just, I always say this and people, people have had so many questions about it. I say, if you're a baptized believer, this table is for you. I say, why do you say that, Rick? Because if you're a believer who's not been baptized as a believer, that's disobedience. And the, the Lord's table is not to be taken in a state of disobedience. 
do we really pause? Do we really, honestly, genuinely, sincerely, actively, intentionally pause at this moment in the life of our church and look at our lives, our pursuits, our lack of pursuits, sins of commission, doing what God has said not to do, sins of omission, not doing what God has commanded us to do. And we come to a place where we really understand that this isn't just a, a habit in our church. This is actually a table that God invites us to sit at with him. Just take your Bibles for a moment and turn over to Deuteronomy. I'm going to prepare for the Lord's table now. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8 says, uh, this is as uh, Moses is uh, preparing for the crossing of the Jordan and the, the nation is about to take the land that God had promised them. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, sh you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Verse 2. You shall remember... You shall remember. Remember when Solomon was talking about our memories can be faulty? Those memories are faulty when we fail to do regular memory cleansing, going back and making sure they're true and right and honorable and pure and above reproach. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You should read the whole chapter. He humbled you he, and let you be hungry. He fed you with manna, which you did not know or did your fathers know that he may make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, by, by everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. What he's saying is simply this. God's gift to our brains and to our minds is memory. Your mind is never being used more intently than the, for the reason that God created it than to have godly memories. And what I mean by that is memories of what God has done for us. You shall remember what the Lord your God has done. Let me encourage you. Let me encourage you to find with your family especially regular times when you can just, just talk about what has God done for us? We were doing this recently with, the, you know, our son John had a, a surgery and we were talking to him and Kim and I were about, well, let's, let's kind of rehearse. What, what did God do in this last week? Let's, let's, let's have a, a clear memory of the blessings that he's done for us. And we started listing one or two or five or ten and there were so many. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you. Is that a memory that's precious to you? You do understand that sitting here safely, having navigated the traffic in Prairie Village 
is a gift of his grace. They led us here with a safety. You understand that we, we ate food today, pro- probably, I'm not going to judge anyone. My suspicion is no one, not one of you, and if you did, please tell me, got up this morning and said, give us this day our daily bread. That if you hadn't had a divine gift of God's favor to give you food, you wouldn't have eaten. And Jesus says, pray like that. Tells you the context of the people he was talking to that literally depended on divine sustenance. You're, you're very, we thank God for food as a habit. Do we thank God for food as, as worship? I mean, I, I'm, I'll confess to you, I, I, staff and I are easy to complain about this old building that can creak and leak, literally. What a blessing that we have it. Do we remember what God has done for us? Do you take the time? Will you? Will you take the time to remember? Because that's at the heart of what Jesus says. He says, when you do this, this table we're going to do, do it, what? To remember me. God told the children of Israel here in Deuteronomy 8, and he tells us in the Lord's table to remember because he knows we are forgetful. Said another way, we're, we're unmindful. Said another way, we're lazy to rehearse God's blessings. Let's use tonight to have a good memory session. Do this to remember me. Let's remember the sins for which God has forgiven us, confess those, and let's remember the cross that paid for them.